Well, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at uh, Jericho. And uh, as we go into this morning, if you want to follow along, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 3. They left the Acacia Grove and they stood at the river's edge of the raging waters. It was obviously too deep and too wide for them to cross on their own. They knew that for certain. But there was talk in the camp that God was going to do something. Some great wonder amongst them, some had said. But come on, was it really possible for this many people to overcome this big of an obstacle? A few of the older generation remembered. They remembered the stories from long ago, how God had opened a way through the waters before in the Red Sea. God had stacked up the waters on the right and on the left. But that was an entire generation ago, and it seemed like God hadn't done anything significant for them in a while. So nothing that spectacular maybe was going to happen to them now. After all, they told themselves, that was then, and this is now. Let's be realistic. It had been a long time since the days of slavery. The great deliverance, the signs and wonders against Pharaoh and his army, the riders of the Egyptian cavalry being thrown into the sea, maybe they thought God's movement among them was finished. Maybe it should be just put in the history books, the stuff of myth, the stuff of memories, not even worth remembering in the face of current struggles. I mean, the water looked just too deep. Joshua was speaking now. It was hard to make out his words, but he was calling the people to listen. Come and listen to what the Lord says. Today, you will know that the living God is among you. Look, the Ark of the Covenant which belongs to the Lord of the whole earth. It will lead you across this raging river. Think of it, friends. The God who formed the entire earth is crossing the River Jordan with you as you watch. So, take 12 men from among the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe, and when the soles of the feet of the priests touch the water's edge, the flow of water will be stopped. Master of all the earth will make it happen. The water will come from upstream and it will pile up in a heap. While murmurs of skepticism probably ran through the assembly, the optimists were hopeful The pessimists were obviously skeptical and the realists just waited to see what would happen. After all, what would stop such a raging torrent? But the people left their tents and they waited to see if they could indeed cross the Jordan River. Led by the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, they stepped in. See, the Jordan always overflows its banks during harvest season in that part of the world. But when the priests got to the edge of the waters, when their feet touched the water, the flow of water did stop. 
The waters stood still and they rose up in a heap a long way off at Adam, which is near Zarethan. And the river went dry all the way down to the salt sea. And the people crossed over, over to Jericho. And there they stood, the priests with the Ark of the Covenant, while all of Israel crossed on dry ground, feet firmly planted. And finally, the whole nation was across, not one wet foot. See, the account of the Israelites and the Jordan River is a perfect place to begin our fall mini-series, which we are calling Four Significant Stones. See, throughout the Bible, stones serve significant purposes, both literally and often also symbolically. So as we move into this fall, we're going to look at four places in the Bible where stones are significant player in the story. Some places where we find stones piled up into altars, monuments to God's saving work and power. And so we're going to name those four stones and we'll see that these four things actually form the bedrock of community life together in a place like Jericho. So let me tell you what I mean. Stones, for example, in the Bible can be an identifying marker. Sometimes they have a name telling you where you are. Uh, Think of it, like we do this too. Uh, Think of if you're down by the beach and you see a large, you're looking at somebody's pictures on Facebook or other places, you see a large white rock that is painted unnaturally white. You know where they are. You think, oh yeah, they're in white rock. Like it actually forms part of the geography, a way marker to tell you where you're at or where they're at. So next Sunday, uh, Dr. Ken Thiessen will be with us and he'll be preaching. He'll be asking the question as a part of our summit weekend together, where's Jericho Ridge at today? It'll be a stone of identity describing where we feel like we're at. So also in the Bible, stones can serve a function not just of telling you where you're at, but also where you should be going, like a wayfinder or a direction kind of stone. And so on September 22nd, we'll be looking together at stones of trajectory or stones that give a sense of direction and hope. And so we'll be looking at where we headed as a church family. And then on October 4th, we'll... uh, finish our time together in 1 Peter chapter 2, where the scripture uses the metaphor of stones again, of living stones, saying that actually all of us together are stones, and we're being built together into God's family, or a community of faith. So let's look at our text for today, and our stone for today, which is a stone of memory, or a stone of witness. Turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. The part that I read before was from the previous chapter, chapter 3. And in Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, Joshua gives the people a sense of the why this was important. Why they had these stones. So let's look into God's word together in Joshua chapter four. I'll be reading together from the New Living Translation and the text will come up on the side screens uh, if you'd like to follow along. When all the people 
had crossed the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Now, choose twelve men, one from each tribe, and tell them, Take twelve stones from the very place where the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan and carry them out. Pile them up and at the place where you will camp tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men that he had chosen, one from each of the tribes of Israel, and he told them, go into the middle of the Jordan in front of the ark of the Lord your God and each of you must pick up one stone and carry it out on your shoulder. 12 stones in all, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And we will use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? So they weren't like tiny stones because they had to be big enough that they would last and that also kids would recognize that it was something. And Joshua says, this is what you can tell them. These stones remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant went across. These stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. So the men did as Joshua commanded them. They took the 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord told them. They carried them to the place where they'd camped for the night, and they constructed a memorial there. Stones of memory. Stones of witness. Stones that have a story associated with them. Stones that mark a significant milestone or point in history in the lives of people, of those people. And as I read Joshua chapter 3 and 4, I thought, well, we don't really do that kind of stuff today, do we? Like, we don't really use stones to mark significant events in the same way. But there are a few exceptions where we kind of do use stones to mark significant events in our lives or transition points. Where our stones become stones of memory or stones of witness. So for example, uh, just over 17 years ago when I wanted to signal a foundational shift in my relationship with Meg, from girlfriend to fiancé, I did it by giving her a stone. A precious stone, not a rock. She would not have appreciated that at all. An engagement ring. The stone marked something in our relationship, something significant, something different, a moment. But it wasn't just a, a private thing. It was actually a public statement to the world of our love and of our intention to marry. Something still needs stones to say that. Another example, uh, last week we were over on Vancouver Island and uh, we were uh, there for Meg's grandfather's funeral. And so at the committal service on the morning, we buried him beside uh, his wife, Meg's grandmother, Wynne. And I took a picture of her tombstone because on that stone, it's a stone of witness, it's a stone of testimony, a stone that says more than just this was the year of her birth, this was the year of her passing. It's a stone that talks about even more than her roles in her life. It talks about her character, talks about her relationship 
with God. It's a stone of memory. It's also a stone of witness. It declares something. And so something still needs stones. In the Old Testament, one of the most prominent ways to remember something was to create a marker or a monument built out of stones, physical stones, literal stones, that you would pile them up in a heap, either making an altar for worship or making a a marker point for witness and testimony. And we read about this in the book of Joshua. When they cross the river, that's that significant moment when they're moving out of the people of Israel from that time of desert wandering and into the land that God has promised to give them, it's such a significant event for them that they need to mark it in some way. And so they do it with stones. They set up a memorial. But it's not just a monument to some event in the past. You know, here in in BC, we have a lot of those, right? You drive into different places and they'll say, a historical route marker. And then there's a nice little plaque on this day in 1860, whatever, such and such happened. You know, those are a little bit like that, but those are stones that kind of, they're just things of forecast backwards. In this instance, this was a reminder for the people to tell a story, not just to observe an event, but to actively and purposefully immerse themselves again in the story of God's saving work and influence in their lives. And the reason that they did that is that they have the same problem that you and I have today, and that is a memory problem. I don't know about you, but a lot of times when God does something in my life or God teaches me something, I'll remember it for a little bit and then I'll move on to the next thing and a few days, few weeks, few months, few years after that event, it's sort of like it's evaporated and I can't quite remember what it was that God did or said to me. For me, that's one of the reasons why I try to keep a a journal of my reading uh, in the mornings of what God's teaching me because I I forget within just a little while of having, I don't know if you're like me, you read through a chapter and then you close up and by the time you've had breakfast, you think, what chapter did I read this morning? But when you actually take the exercise that we do with our shape journaling, and there's bookmarks for you, you can help with that. You actually write it down. It forms a marker point, like a memorial, that you can then immerse yourself again in the story of what it is that God has done in your life. Because we have a memory problem. I have a memory problem. You go on a a short-term mission experience, like our teams do every year to Guatemala, And then a couple weeks after you get back, you're all excited and fired up. And then a few months later, it's like, ah, I kind of forget a little bit about what's going on down there. We have a memory problem. doesn't matter how old or how young you are. We have a hard time as human beings calling to mind God's work in our lives. And we especially have a hard time doing this when we're just not feeling it in the moment, in the present. See, it's easy for us to remember things that are connected with emotion experiences, for us. But when the emotions fade, sometimes our memory fades in connection with that. Part of that for me is I think I'm a very forward-focused kind of person. I'm very bound and determined to move ahead. And so it can be difficult for me to stop and to kind of cast my gaze 
backwards and be reflective and remembering. And that's what Joshua is driving at here in verse 7 of Joshua chapter 4. He's saying to them, listen, we are building this altar as a witness to what God has done, a talking point, because what will happen is in the future, you will forget this amazing event that the Lord has done. You will be busy with other things. And the amazement and the emotions that you feel right here, right now, standing on the side of the Jordan, having just walked through and witnessed what God has done, will fade and you will forget. And so Joshua says, we need to actually create almost a ritual or a memento or a monument that will help us remember. Because if you look at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, when the people are gathered and receiving instructions and teaching, a few interesting things happen. That's another place for stones in the scripture. God's instructions are actually written on stones to them as an instruction for their permanence. And then when they're read to them again at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, not that long after they've been written down, Moses says to them, to the people, now you're gonna, rem- you're gonna forget all of this. And the people say, no, Moses, we would never do that. Like it's written right in the stone tablets. We would never forget. And Moses says, it's gonna happen. I'm just telling you. Fast forward just a few short years and they've already forgotten so many of those things. And so Joshua knows it's true. You and I know it's true. We have a propensity to forget so easily. And so Joshua says to them, hey, listen, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna come years from now on like a little uh, holiday with your family to the side of the Jordan River and you're gonna be camping and the kids are gonna be out and they're gonna stumble upon this pile of rocks and they'll run back to the campsite and they'll say, mom, dad, mom, dad, look what we found. We found this like really cool pile of rocks just sitting out in the middle of this field by the river. What's up with the rocks? And Joshua says, that's your cue. When that happens, you say to them, this is your opportunity to call to mind and bear witness to the amazing work that God has done. These stones will help you remember. And the reason for the stones is because the problem of memory still exists, not only for individuals, but also it exists for spiritual communities like the church. The church is really great at sometimes memorializing events and then rushing on to the next thing because the calendar just kind of orchestrates itself that way. Just a few short months ago, we had Jericho's 10th anniversary. And so we celebrated, we memorialized it. We had a potluck and a picnic, went down by the river, and then we moved on. And it's easy for us to forget significant things that has transpired in the journeys that God has taken us through. And here at Jericho, one of the challenges is that we have been in a significant season of challenge in our short 10-year history. And for many people, this has been hard. It's been hard personally for me. And friends, there's a few things that can happen when you get into a season of challenge, either personally or organizationally. And there's a couple possible responses that happen. One is blind optimism. 
just to ignore the past and just kind of push into the future, to ignore or minimize reality. Politicians are really great at this one, aren't they? Nothing to see here, nothing to see. Move along to the next thing. Next news cycle, please. Let's just keep focused on the forward, focused on the future. But one of the reasons it's important for Joshua to put up a pile of stones is that something of substance has happened. And so the temptation to blind optimism is not really helpful because it just glosses over the reality of life and the substance of what's happened. So people that are more wired towards blind optimism just think to themselves, well, let's not really pause. Let's just kind of, can we just keep going into the future? I just want to focus there. I don't want to live with my current realities. But Joshua says, you know what? We need to put these stones up because something of substance has happened. Something of significance has happened here. And see, Joshua knows what lies ahead of the children of Israel. They have hard work to do still. See, they're, they've crossed the Jordan into the land that God has promised them, but they have years of work ahead of them to actually take possession of the land. So Joshua doesn't say to them, this is amazing. This thing that God just did for us now is so awesome. All right, everybody. You know, this is just like, we're gonna live on cloud nine all the time. The whole thing is up and to the right. This is gonna be great. He says, you know what? We need to remind ourselves of this moment because in the future, it's going to be rough. And we are going to, when we face obstacles, have a temptation to give up and to say to ourselves, huh, God is not here. This whole process was dumb. We should just forsake it. And Joshua says, at those moments, we kind of need to come back to this memorial and remember, you know what? God did something amazing for us here. God was with us and for us. And we are not going to trust in our own strength. We're going to remind ourselves of who God is. And we pile up these stones as a way of reminding ourselves, we have a lot in front of us. It's not going to be easy, but it is what God has for us to do. And so these stones declare not only what happened, but also call us to remember what it is that we are about, and that is our hope and trust for the future is in God and God alone. So the corrective to blind optimism is actually just a sense of grit, a sense of stick-to-itiveness that has some stoniness to it, that has a bit of a backbone to it. Faith mixed with grit is something that is sorely lacking in our world today because there's a tendency to quickly bail out when the future doesn't look rosy. But those are the moments and the times when you go back to that monument and you say, you know what, the future may not look rosy, the present may not even look rosy, but God is with us and God has done something significant for us. And Christians especially are tempted by this. They, they, have, a ch- they have a challenge to kind of face up to that and sometimes it gets sort of layered over with religious language in ways that are unhelpful. So blind optimism, one element maybe that's not helpful the corrective to that, grit, some stick to of memory. Now, if optimists have a tendency to want to skip over things, 
Tough times, though, can be good times to pause and ask good questions, hard questions, questions that you don't often want to think about or don't have to think about when things are going well. And this is hard work. And it's maybe not always a lot of fun to ask those questions. But you can't just move into the future without knowing what the future is going to look like. That's blind optimism. You need to define it a little bit more carefully. I can't in good conscience as a pastor, and our elders can't as they provide leadership to the church, just stand up and say, oh, we're all just going to go into the future blindly, naively. We need to be able to actually identify and call us as a people to something. That's responsible and leadership with grit. And so that's what this Friday and this Saturday is about. You've been hearing us talk about this for a long time. This is a summit that we're having together. And we're coming together on Friday and Saturday to seek God's heart and to talk with each other about where we're at and where we're going. And so I would expect that if you're a person who's been around Jericho for any length of time, that you would be there. Because this is an important moment for our community. And I know that's a sacrifice to contribute a whole weekend, Friday and Saturday. We're going to feed you, we promise. We always do at Jericho. And then Sunday, we're going to have a baptism and a celebration here. And we're going to eat together there too. But I would expect that we would come together as a family and seek God's heart and help shape and pray and do the hard work of living into the future together with some grit and with some tenacity. So that from the over-optimist, right? I'm trying to temper my optimism because not all of you are as optimistic as, as, uh, as myself. But if blind optimism is not helpful, the other thing that is not helpful, that is a possible response in moments of challenge is critical pessimism. So you've got blind optimists on the one hand and then you've got the critical pessimist on the other hand. The critical pessimist is the person that says, you know what? It was easier and better on the other side of the Jordan, Joshua. We didn't have this big task ahead of us of taking the land. Like, I mean, I really don't like the strategy that we have for taking the cities. I don't think it's going to work, really, like marching around the city of Jericho, just marching and singing for a couple of days. I'm not really down with that strategy. I think it's really unhelpful. I don't really see how it's going to work. I think it's just like, I'm not going to do it. I'll let the other people go and march and sing and get their exercise. I'm not going to go out there. I mean, then the walls are what, just going to magically fall down? Come on. See, pessimism in the camp isn't a horrible thing, but when you mix together pessimism and criticism, you can have a toxic combination. Because people who are pessimistic and who then begin to lash out in uncertain times and criticize those around them have no grace for other people around them and have no grace for people in their community because they're stuck living in the past. So friends, the challenge for the critical pessimist is living in the past is not a way forward. Staying in the present, wishing we could relive the past here at Jericho isn't going to work. There are people, there are neighbors who live around you, co-workers, fellow students, to your right, to your left, up your street, down the hall from you. And these people are lost. They're heading into eternity without Christ. And the most natural thing in the world when you are frightened and when you're uncertain about the future is to kind of begin to close in on yourself 
And when things are changing fast, to just kind of circle the wagons. And it's a natural thing to do when you're frightened and things are changing and maybe friends have left and you hope against hope that everything can stay the same or go back to it was. But unfortunately, as an optimist, I'm going to burst your bubble and say in an urban environment like ours with the level of transitions that we have in our culture, it's just not going to happen. Things cannot stay the same. And that's a challenge. The level of transiency in our culture isn't slowing down. And so, yeah, staying on the other side of the Jordan is safer and easier and cozier, but it just isn't possible because that would compromise our mission. It would compromise our directive from Jesus to not just love others and love God, but to love those that are far from him and to extend grace and mercy to them to remember that you and I once were lost, but now we're found. And to remember that, we have to tell ourselves the stories over and over and over again of how God's grace has worked in our lives and in our families and in this place and in this church because we forget. And when we forget, then we can't offer that grace to other people. To remember that you and I have been saved by grace and we live by grace, but it's impossible to extend authentic grace to people around us when we're critical and pessimistic all the time. So some of you need to retell yourself the stories of grace and God's work in your life. And you need to retell yourself stories of God's work in your life that will help you move beyond criticism and move beyond pessimism. The third response is not just blind optimism, not just critical pessimism, but another response is grounded realism. See, there's another stone story in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the enemies of Israel, the Philistines. And it's gone over into the Philistines' land and it's so powerful, God's presence with the Ark, that no matter where the Philistines put it, trouble breaks out for them. Their gods, Dagon, falls down in front of the Ark. Disease breaks out in the cities where it goes to. And so the Philistines say, I don't know what this thing is, this box, but we got to get rid of it. And so they send it back to the people of Israel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel gathers the people of Israel together to celebrate and to worship that God has done this for them. And so Samuel says, hey, we're turning our hearts back to God. We're going to worship. And they set up an altar for worship. But as they do that, and as they gather together, the Philistines think to themselves, you know what? This is going to be a good strategic move for us. They're all in one place. Let's get our army together and let's go get them now. Who cares about their little ark box? We have a bigger army and a stronger army. Let's do this. So the Philistines mount an attack against the people of God who are gathered for worship and for celebration. And the people began to freak out and think, ah, the Philistines are coming. They're going to get us. This isn't going to work. Look at how we're outnumbered. And Samuel reminds them and says, listen, God is going to do a mighty work in our midst today. 
And 1 Samuel chapter 7 says, the Lord spoke with a mighty voice from heaven and the Philistine army was thrown into such confusion that though they were a small group, outnumbered and outarmed, the people of Israel defeated the Philistines in such a way that they had peace for years from their enemies. And when they did that, they came back. And 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 says that Samuel took a stone and he set it up and he gave it a name. The name was called Ebenezer. And in a twist of irony, Ebenezer was the name of the place where the Israelites first lost the ark to the Philistines and it was taken and stolen from them. And Samuel, in essence, recaptures that name and that place and says, you know what? It doesn't matter. God is with us and we will rename this place Ebenezer. And Ebenezer means the Lord has helped us. It is a stone of help, the name Ebenezer means. Samuel was setting up this monument to God's help and salvation, and he says, up till this point, God has helped us. There's writers uh, and historians, W. and A. Peterson, and they make a note in their book about a hymn that actually borrows the language of 1 Samuel chapter 7 and writes it uh, both to words and to music in a, in a hymn called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And in the second verse of that hymn, it's written by a gentleman named Robert Robinson. And Robert Robertson's story is that in his youth, he was the leader of a notorious gang. But he was wonderfully converted in a revival by the preaching of George Whitfield. And he later went on to become a pastor in a church in Norfolk in Virginia. He was 23 years old when he wrote that hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And the lines in the song are of the second verse, here I raise my Ebenezer. Here I raise my stone of help. By thy great help I have come. And later on in his life, sadly he drifted from faith. And the story is told that he was once traveling on a stagecoach and a lady sitting next to him was actually reading a book of hymns. And she was reading the hymn that he had written and going on and on and on about how wonderful it was, how melodic the music was, how deep and meaningful the words had been to her. She read the verse of the second verse. Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I have come. And Robert Robertson said to her, Madam, I am the poor man who wrote that hymn many years ago and I would give a thousand words to enjoy the feelings that I had then. See, it's indeed true. The next verse, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
prone to leave the God I love. You see, sometimes we think that if we set up a stone, an Ebenezer stone, that says, God has helped us, that it's a guarantee somehow that we won't wander or forget. But an Ebenezer is a stone of help to the present point. It's not a guarantee for the future. A stone of help reminds us of what we have forgotten. It reminds us of what God has done in our lives and in our hearts. And it reminds us, more importantly, what to do when we wander. See, in the New Testament, we're reminded of another place of memory, another place of witness, where a monument of a very, very different kind was set up. A place of stone, not a place, a place of wood, not a place of stone. A place where you and I are called to return when we wander. Because another hymn writer put it this way, on a hill far away stood an old and rugged cross. It was an emblem. It was a monument. It was a place of suffering and shame. And the New Testament reminds us, and we're told very explicitly that the cross is a place of remembrance and witness. The book of 1 Corinthians reminds us to remember that event, that day when Jesus Christ gave his life for you and I to take away our sins and then rose again from the grave, defeating the power of sin and death and darkness. And the way that we're told to remind ourselves of that is actually elemental. It's physical because our memories, again, are not that good. But this time, the elements are not stones, it's bread. It's the fruit of the vine. The bread reminds us and represents the body of Christ. And when we eat this bread, the scripture reminds us we are doing this to remember. When we drink the cup, which is to remind us of Christ's blood shed for us. We are doing it not only to remember, but also to proclaim and declare the Lord's death until he comes. It's a sign. It's a symbol. It's a monument. And so, as we move into a time of communion response today, I want us to remember, not just in an abstract, mental kind of, of way, but in a very concrete and very specific way. And so under your chair, each chair you will find a stone. And I want you to take that stone. And that's going to become for you today your tangible and physical reminder of what God has done for you in your life. Maybe you think of a specific event in your life, a time when someone prayed for you for healing and God answered in power. Maybe you remember a time when you called out to God and said, God, I need you. I need your saving grace in my life. And God delivered you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of his son, whom he loves. Maybe for you, it's something that's happened this week and you just say, you know, I remember that I was praying about this and God moved in my life and in my work 
and in my world or in my family in this way. And the time and the response that I want to call us to is a monument of thanksgiving. Because too often we forget to say, God, it is only by your help that I've come this far. And so when we take communion today, I want you to take your rock with you to the table. And you'll see just on the edge of the table, and Joel and Sharon will serve at this table, and Meg will serve at this table. Just on the edge of the table, there's already started a small pile of stones. And so if you want to use this as a way of tangibly declaring your thanks to God for something he has done for you in your life, you take your rock with you, and you walk to the communion table, and before you receive the elements, you just add it to the pile, and you say, God, I'm putting this here as my monument to say thank you to you for your work. Here by thy great help I have come and I hope by thy good pleasure to safely arrive at home. And then you can move to taking the elements. You're welcome to take them back to your seat with you. Jared and the team will come and as they lead us in worship, I'll remind you that our prayer response team is also available for you. Anne-Marie and Gary and myself will be at the sides. And if you have something that you say, God, I need you to do something today in my life. Or I want to say thank you, God, for moving in my life in a particular way today. Maybe you want to spend some time praying for our church in advance of our summit this weekend. Maybe you have a personal or family concern that you want to lift up to God. We would love to be available for you at the sides. And so you can do that before or after you come and take communion. I'm going to pray for us together, and then our posture is, as your heart is ready, you can move to the table as a team will lead us in three songs of response, so at any time during those songs. God, you have called us not just to be people who live in the past, not just to be people who live with a sense of hope in what it is that you're doing in the future, but to live as people of faith in the present, in this day and in this moment. But God, we invite you in this day and this moment to jog our memories because we forget. We forget what you've done for us. We forget what you've done for us individually. We forget what you have done for your people throughout history. We forget your grace and your goodness so easily. And so we confess that to you, Father, and we name our forgetfulness as something that we want to turn from. We want to return again to a place of worship and praise and thanksgiving to you. And so, Father, would you stir our hearts for that as a people, as individuals, God, would you also stir our hearts for repentance if there are anything else that we need to turn from. As individuals, we want to do that before we come to your table. And so, Father, by your Spirit, would you work and point out any elements of our life that would be out of alignment with you and with your heart. And we want to be walk, people who walk in repentance towards each other and towards you as well. And so, Father, as we come to this place, we come in humility. We don't come because of our own strength. We come 
because of what you have done for us. We come as people who want to declare your amazing faithfulness and grace to us in every aspect of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and we declare this together by saying, Amen. Amen.
fascinating essay called Learning in Wartime says the following and the page just reset as I was just about to read this but that's okay he's talking about the 
faultiness of dwelling in the past and the faultiness of just waiting for the future. And he says this, Never in peace or war commit your virtue or your happiness to the future. Happy work is best done by the man who takes his long-term plans somewhat lightly and works from moment to moment as to the Lord. It is only our daily bread that we are encouraged to ask for. The present is the only time in which any duty can be done or any grace received. I love how Brad mentioned that this Ebenezer is, is, is an indicator, is a reminder to us that to this point, God has been faithful and his character stands true. So we retell these stories. We rehearse the gospel. We recite it to ourselves again and again. So let's close with one more song. Uh, just declaring the goodness of God found most profoundly in the, in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. One day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin Jesus came forth to 
is far away. Rising, we just die. Pray forever. One day he's receive a benediction from Hebrews chapter 13. May the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant by his blood. May he equip you with everything that you need to do his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him so that all glory will go to him forever and ever. May you go from this place with the knowledge of God's desire to produce in you every good thing that you need to do his will. The team will continue to lead in worship. If you'd like to stay, you're more than welcome to worship. If you'd like to engage with others around you, you're welcome to move over to the other side of the curtains and continue in connecting with people in that way. Living you love me.